Hello and welcome to the Christchurch Podcast. My name is Grant Caldwell and this Lenten and Easter season, I'll be joined each week by other pastors on staff as we reflect on New Life Rising, a new devotional by Christianity Today that we'll be reading together churchwide. In this podcast, we'll do as the book's introduction invites us to do, journey through the somber season of Lent, into the dark depths of Good Friday, and out into the marvelous light to Easter and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll be led through the landscape of Jesus' homeland and the journey he walks through times of confusion, despair, and hope, and into everlasting joy. As we have these weekly conversations together through the seasons of Lent and Easter, we'll wonder and discuss what we believe needs to die in order to lead to vibrant life in our unique context of vocation and community, embracing the gift of the gospel. On today's show, we'll be looking at the first devotion and chapter in New Life Rising, entitled World Weary in the Garden of Gethsemane. Joining me today is Reverend Dr. Jackie Gatliff, Associate Pastor and Director of Care Ministries. Jackie, welcome. Thank you, Grant. Good to be here. Well, this is a Lent and Easter podcast, so we're going to begin each one with a serious question to determine where the leaders of Christ's church stand on this crucial Easter issue. The question for you, Reverend Dr. Jackie Gatliff, what is your opinion on peeps? Oh, Grant, I, I don't understand peeps. It's not part of my worldview. It's not part of my daily life. I do know that at some point in the next few weeks, my husband's going to come in with peeps because he loves, evidently, there's something that you put him in the microwave for four seconds and he says they're incredible. Okay. They're incredible. So I try to live that through him, but I'm not really. I'm just like, okay, blow up the peep. Okay, so peep skeptics. Peep skeptic. A four-second microwave. Four-second microwave. Changes everything. Okay. Yeah. We have our homework assignment. There you go. Four-second microwave of peeps. Thank you. Okay, now that we can set that aside, we can get into the the other stuff of, of the devotional. Uh, it's three pages long, so I, I feel like I can't call it the first chapter, so yeah. maybe the first devotional. So the first entry in, in New Life Rising, the the central idea that, that she talks about is this German idea of, of Weltschmerz. She describes it as a mood of weariness or sadness about life arising from the acute awareness of evil and suffering, a melancholy ache in the pit of my stomach when I realize the world is not as it should be. I read that first paragraph and just stopped and immediately thought, Memphis is experiencing Weltschmerz right now. This is words uh, on paper that I've been feeling. I'm curious, did you feel that similarly? Or I'd love just to hear your thoughts about this idea of of Weltschmerz. Well, when I read it, I felt like it gave words to my feelings that I haven't been able to express. It just kind of summed it up really clearly that, you know, that there is just this melancholy and just this sense that things really are not as they should be or as they have always thought they should be. Like, what has changed? Something something significant feels like it has shifted. I don't know whether it's really shifted or whether we're just more aware of it. Yeah. I think it's both. Yeah. I, I think that there is some hard, hard things going on in the city, but, um, but I also think we're just more aware of it. Yeah, I think so, too. I was talking with someone earlier, and we've been in Memphis for going on seven years now. My wife is originally from here, but I'm a relatively new Memphian. And just in these six to seven years, we feel like there's just been such a change in this feeling that this experience of Weltschmerz mm-hmm. has become so present lately that it wasn't, it didn't seem that way when we moved here. Fun. And I don't yeah. know if that was naivety on our part coming into a city new or cultural changes or just 
life pre-pandemic versus post-pandemic, but it, it feels like it's just heavy right now. Well, you know, part of our story is that we were in Memphis for what, five and a half years, and then um, we moved to Connecticut for six years, and we chose to come back to Memphis. And we did that for a number of reasons, and part of it was just how much the Christians love the city. I mean, we've lived in different parts around the country, but we've never lived in a place where churches and individuals, believers, are just engaged in the city. But I think we kind of came back, it is, we came back, what, five years ago, and, and it was different. Maybe the pandemic threw that curveball at all of us, but but yeah, it's, it's changed. Uh, I don't know if comfort is the right word. I, I, like, yeah, I just felt reassured that someone was putting words to what mm-hmm. I feel like not just we as a church are collectively experiencing, but just we as a city are experiencing right now. So she talks about it, and then she goes to this idea of when you experience Weltschmerz, we all have this desire to fix things or to control our way out of it. I'm, I'm curious, in your role as you lead, and you lead this incredible grief ministry here at the church and around the world, New Hope Grief Care, but also th- you lead pastoral care and counseling at the church. I'm just curious, how do you see this play out in your ministry? You know, I think the biggest thing, Grant, is that our deep desire to hide from pain and suffering. We want to avoid it at all costs. And so it throws us off when we find ourselves in the midst of grief in the midst of um, pain, that relationship hasn't gone right. Our kids are struggling. Our daughter is being bullied. You know, just, I mean, we could just go on and on and on. But we want to fix it. We want to prevent it. And we don't know how, because a lot of it just cannot be prevented. We forget that we're in a fallen world. We forget that part of our belief is that the world is broken. You know, Genesis the fall came, sin entered the world, and we forget that we're still that that's where we're living. So that things really aren't as they should be, but that's where they are right now. But yeah, but it is that thing. I mean, when I, when I talk with people like in, in grief groups, they're you know they're, they're processing the death of someone they love, and they're always like they're always trying to find. Well, if if we had done this, then that wouldn't have happened. If they had gotten mom to the doctor early, then that wouldn't have happened. Or if I didn't send my kid to that school, they wouldn't have engaged in drugs. We're trying to find what is the clean path and the safe path for all of that. But it is just this desire. We're going to avoid the pain and suffering, and so we're going to do absolutely everything we can to protect ourselves, to protect our families. Do you feel like a lot of the people that you talk with, this desire of control, do you think it's mostly looking backwards of, I should have done this if I would have only done that? Or do you feel like it's more looking forward or, I must do this, I have to do um, that so that it doesn't happen again? Yes, that, yeah, that's really good. Because I think because they are looking back, they're like, well, I'm not going to let that happen again. And so it really is, it's like an external self-protection. I'm going to do everything I can. But there's an internal self-protection. You know, I'm just going to make sure I'm going to hold my heart close. I'm just going to be engaged with only a few people. I'm, I can't be hurt in a relationship. So it is that whole self-protection thing, both, you know, outwardly and inwardly, I think begins to drive us. But yeah, that's a great point, Grant, that we're looking, okay, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. So therefore, I'm going to make these choices that you probably wouldn't have made in the past unless those other things had happened. In your role, what are some examples or what are some ways that you see people avoiding their grief or or trying to turn to control to manage this sense of grief? People do that all the time. It's going to be an individual way how they choose to do that. So much of it is people just lean into distracting themselves from it. 
um, whether they, they're going to engage in some kind of activity, they're going to throw themselves into things like social media or something with their kids or just anything to avoid looking at it. But then what happens is that that grief is it's still there. It's only when they begin to say, okay, I'm really not in control. This thing keeps popping up on me. You know, one of the things I love about the grief groups I lead, people think that it's people are coming in, like if the, if the death has happened recently, like four or six months maybe, I love it when I have, like I've got a group going on right now where a, the parent died six years ago, eight years ago, and the, the daughter is saying, I didn't have time to look at it because I have these other things going on, but now I need, they just realize I need to be addressing this because they know not really sure how, but they know that it's popping up in their lives in ways that they just don't want it to. I feel like this idea of control and grief is so important for us to talk about in Lent because it's, we're in a season of where we give up control. It's what she's asking us to do. I feel like we have to put to death the idea that we were ever the ones in control. And to do that in a season where we're following Jesus to the cross. It, 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 there's a picture of Jesus through the Lenten season and, and on his journey to the cross. He's completely in control. It says in, in Luke 9, he, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't accidentally end up there. He's the one intentionally going. And so his purposeful control going there frees us up to be able to do that and let go of control. But I think often we've, we feel like we can't do that, especially with grief. We feel like we just have to hold on to things and control things to protect ourselves from weariness. I, I love the phrase that you use, purposeful control, that Jesus knew exactly what he was about, where he was going. For us, we don't, it's hard for us to maintain a purpose in our control. You know, Grant, how much I just live in John 11 and Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And, and you know, it was it's mentioned here in, in the reading um, this week. But, you know, there is that just that scene where Martha who last time we saw her, she was in the kitchen and being reprimanded for she needed to choose the better thing. Something changed in her, and so she knew something. But for her, if Jesus had been there, her brother wouldn't have died. Now, I don't know why she thought that. Like, what, what made her think that, okay, just his presence would stop that? But she was convinced, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary says, it, says the same words a few sentences later in that story. But that isn't what Jesus was about. He was about, he was going to be bringing glory to the Father. And to, he actually had something bigger that he wanted to have happen other than their brother being raised from the dead. But that was what happened. You know, I was thinking about this. You know, there's something about, we don't know how they were the next day. Scripture tells us everything we need to know, absolutely, for our faith and practice. But just in our sanctified imaginations, I just think about, okay, they woke up the next day saying, did that really happen? But my point is, like, then how did they live their lives? Did they live it with self-protection? Did they say, okay, therefore, we're not going to do this because we might die? No, I think there was a freedom in it, that there was a freedom when they let that go, when they faced it, and then they were just able to to walk in freedom in it, that they weren't consumed by their fear of it. You know, Lazarus did die. Martha and Mary did die. You know, they encountered, but they did it in a different way because they had released that control. They had experienced Jesus in it. The picture, which I'm glad you brought that up, she talks about on page 10 of John 11, the importance of Jesus saying that God's going to be glorified through this. But the way that that happens is that Jesus weeps. 
He experiences, yeah. this is a God who weeps, a God who ugly cries. God is intimately acquainted with the ache of Weltschmerz. And this idea of God's path to the cross is experiencing the weariness that we feel so that we can trust where he's going because we know that God too feels this. God too mourns and weeps over the, the angst we're feeling over our city, over our lives, over our family. We follow a savior that isn't distant from that. But Lent reminds us that he's well acquainted with it in the truest, deepest sense. That's exactly right. Because, you know, what we always stumble over, why did Jesus weep if he knew what he was about to do? Because he was very aware that this is not how things are supposed to be. And so he was just feeling that heartbreak, that heartache that he was seeing around him, not just um, Mary Martha. He's looking at that whole village who is gathered around them at at the tomb, and he knows just the, the pain. But he weeps even though he knows what's going to happen. Hey, there's, there's about to be a glorious moment that you all are going to be a part of. You all are going to be there helping Lazarus be unwrapped as he comes out of that tomb. But yet there's still the awareness. And didn't that awareness make that moment even more incredible mm-hmm. when he stepped out of the tomb? Yeah. And, and they had no idea that was going to happen. They didn't know what he was about. Come out. Martha said, no, 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 no. It's going to, it's going to be a mess. It's going to smell bad. She said, just stick with me. Watch what's going to happen. That leads to the final thing I want us to discuss and ask is just this idea of hope. I mean, I think the beauty of Lent is that we, we journey to the cross, but we always know that Good Friday is not the end of the story, that, that Easter's coming, that uh, whether you take the, the Tolkien quote that everything sad is going to come untrue or the quote by Dr. King that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Easter is this reminder that Lent is 40 days, but Easter is coming. This devotional ends with this idea of hope. She says in the final paragraph, this is what hope looks like in the face of world weariness. Fervent prayers through the anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, action instead of apathy, love instead of hate, prayer instead of silence, and ultimately recognizing that despite the familiar ache of Weltschmerz that lurks just beneath the surface, we can choose hope instead of despair because of what Christ did on the cross. Jackie, what is something that is giving you hope right now? A lot of things are giving me hope right now, actually. Even in the midst of just real, I mean, just bad news in Memphis this week, but just the hope that God is, in fact, moving. I mean, we have heard firsthand the stories of the revival at Asbury and then just the longing, knowing that God is on the move um, and how much we want it to happen here, and it's happening here. I mean, we're seeing it Sunday after Sunday in our Ash Wednesday service. I mean, it is just there's a different way we are moving through the halls, you know, as we're thinking, okay, huh, it is, we're pondering anew what God can in fact do. And I think part of the challenge of Lent is that we know the punchline, that we know we know what Sunday will be like. We know what hymns will sing. It will be glorious. It truly will be glorious. But what Lent can do, that if we are willing to dive into it more and explore just that things aren't as they should be outwardly and, not, and inwardly things aren't as they should be, then it can be as though we're experiencing Easter for the first time. Resurrection Sunday can be a brand new day, even though it's familiar. It can still be brand new. Amen. Jackie, thank you so much Thanks, for joining Grant. us. Appreciate uh, it. And thank you so much for listening to New Life Rising. Next week, we'll be back with a new guest looking at the second chapter against the Lenten frenzy. Until then, grab your peeps and visit your microwave, uh, and we'll see you back next week. Take up and read church. We'll see you then.